Happy New Year. I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge. And if this is your first time hearing our show, good news, it's a super simple idea. We've all had teachers in our lives who helped us become who we are today, and every educator we have on this podcast, whether teacher, coach, or professor, is nominated by the folks who listen. So we want you to be a part of this show with us. You can tell us about the educators who've inspired you and the folks in your community who deserve a spotlight. You can send over those emails with your nominations and story ideas at teacherslounge at niu.edu. And on this first episode of Teacher's Lounge in 2024, we are talking to a paraprofessional with decades of experience in the classroom. And if you don't work in education or it's been a while since you've been in school, you might be thinking, what is a paraprofessional? Well, you might know them as a couple other things, maybe a teacher's aide or assistant. They're educators, they're support staff who work with students in general education classrooms, special education settings, everywhere in schools. And Dana Gilbreth is a paraprofessional at the Valley View Community School District in Romeoville, Illinois. And she's been, again, a paraprofessional for decades and actually, she's recently started a journey to become a classroom teacher. And one of the reasons for that is that Dana is African-American and she started to realize that her students were getting more and more diverse, but the teaching staff wasn't. So I, I thought it was time for me to step up and play a bigger part in the change for our students. We talk with Dana about why she loves to be a paraprofessional and why she's decided to make this shift 30 plus years into her education career. But before that conversation with Dana, we have another education story we want to share. In late 2021, a coalition of some of the country's top pediatricians declared the youth mental health crisis a national emergency. And I got to hear from families and care providers about how challenging it is for children to access the mental health support they need. And as a warning to listener, this story does talk about suicide. So if you or someone you know might be considering suicide, you can call or text 988 for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That's 988. Na is 14 years old. She loves science and is a talented artist. She's creative and loves gaming. Over the past few years, she's also had a number of severe mental health challenges. She's been hospitalized and ultimately landed in an inpatient facility in another state, hundreds of miles from her home. Her mom, Brittany Cotton of Rockford, says that every step of the way, youth mental health services have been inconsistent, inadequate, or unavailable. This whole situation, with services being so difficult, the overall feeling is isolation. That is the hardest part of all of it, is feeling like you are the only one facing this alone. For many kids like Na, the first person to notice something is wrong is a teacher. Since the pandemic, the vast majority of public schools say they've seen an increase in students seeking mental health support. And schools have tried to step up in many ways. In Illinois, the state launched a hotline called Safe to Help that allows students to raise red flags about themselves or friends they're worried about. Students can take mental health days off from school, and many have used pandemic relief funding and secured federal grants to hire more counselors, social workers and school psychologists. Genevieve Maltby is a school social worker at the Harlem School District in McChesney Park, and she says they've seen an increase in student need, but not an increase in staff to meet that need. So social workers like Maltby are forced to react to student incidents instead of proactively helping them before a major problem develops. It's a bit like triage in war. 
because really at the high school level, I don't have time to sit with a student for a lengthy amount of time. So it's really just about like getting in quick fixes and that's not effective at all. Even with so many short staffed, school-based support can be genuinely helpful. According to her mom, it was for Nah. Schools would sit down and try to talk to her, try to work through things. Often didn't work that way. They had to get me involved, but they would take more time to check in on her than any of the services we were involved in. Back at Harlem, Maltby says one misconception that people have is that school social workers commonly provide one-on-one -on -one behavioral therapy to students. At Harlem, they don't, but they do partner with community organizations and agencies so they can refer students out for therapy. Sometimes therapists from those agencies even come in and provide treatment at the school, but as Maltby says. Not as many as I think we should. I think that's an area that we could definitely provide more services for. But that being said, when we do offer that, it fills up quickly and then we're short-staffed again because they don't have the people either. That's another crucial point. Even if kids are referred out for therapy, it might be a while before they actually see a therapist due to long wait lists. And if that child is in a mental health emergency and threatening their own life, Advocates say that waiting can be very dangerous. Marshmallows Hope is a nonprofit in Rockford that provides youth mental health counseling and mentorship. Laura Kane is the founder and executive director, and she created Marshmallows Hope after her son Zachary died by suicide in 2018. The reason why Marshmallows Hope exists is because of the lack of services and the wait list that other entities in the community were struggling with. Three years ago, the organization started as a mentorship program for kids struggling with mental health. But then a child they were mentoring attempted suicide, and they couldn't get them into therapy for months. We had a second child who attempted, and then they couldn't get him into services until June. So six months of a wait list, right? That child reattempted again. But at that point, I petitioned Winnebago County, and I was like, we need to do something. I need to hire a therapist. And Kane says those situations weren't outliers. It was six months wait on average to get them into therapy. And that's deadly. Those wait lists still exist, but groups in the Rockford area like Marshmallows Hope and the National Youth Advocate Program can provide immediate, short-term counseling while kids in crisis wait for long-term therapeutic options. Brittany Cotton says she wishes Marshmallows Hope had existed in early 2020 when Na needed help the most. At that point, they were caught up on wait lists, and then once they finally got a good therapist, staff turnover and inconsistent sessions made progress more difficult, especially as the pandemic was unfolding folding and COVID interrupted services. Kane says that the number of kids requiring mental health services has skyrocketed with the pandemic. They currently have nearly 170 children receiving services and 90% of those kids have attempted suicide. And she says that while the need has increased, the number of community support services has not. There have been a few improvements, but overall, Kane sees the Northern Illinois community in worse shape now than before the pandemic, especially when it comes to inpatient services. That's the number one need. We have nowhere for kids in our local community to go to an inpatient hospital stay if they're in high crisis like that. Mercy Health closed their inpatient mental health unit at Javon Bay Hospital in Rockford. Medicaid doesn't often cover inpatient youth mental health services unless the child has a co-occurring substance use disorder. Rosecrans is a behavioral health treatment center in Rockford, and they used to have funding to help provide youth inpatient care without substance use. 
Sadie Cobio is the Assistant Administrator of Community Behavioral Health Services at Rosecrans, and she says a change in the center's funding source has made that more complicated. So our residential services are specific to primary substance use, which honestly goes back to like the funding source. So Rosecrans is happy to provide the service for either. Um, from a funding perspective, they really have to be primary substance use. Kane at Marshmallows Hope says there also just aren't enough beds at hospitals like Swedish American either. So when a child is in crisis and needs to be hospitalized, even when they have a plan and the means, sometimes there's nowhere to send them. Amber Shepard is the engagement specialist with the Rockford Mobile Crisis Response Team, part of the National Youth Advocate Program. And she agrees with that. We don't have it really anywhere to send them to because resources are, are so limited. Brittany Cotton says her daughter Na has been turned away because of a lack of beds. And it nearly happened again this year when she needed to be hospitalized because of her mental health. It's a terrifying time to try to get help and more and more children. We've been told that beds were completely full and like four different hospitals when Sushi American would check. They were always full, always full. Um, so we got lucky this year. We got lucky um, to get her in because every other year they were completely full. Her daughter was in the hospital for about two weeks. And after she was released, Cotton knew that she needed the full-time support of a residential center. And without inpatient services available locally, Cotton, like so many, was forced to explore sending her daughter to an out-of-state facility. But to do that, she not only needed to figure out which one she could pay for and which was the best equipped to handle her daughter and was in a place that she felt somewhat comfortable with, they also had to deal with even more wait lists. Once again, it took months. And trying to work out which facility might work for your child's needs, it's really hard. In general, Cotton says maneuvering between services and making sure everyone knows the medications her daughter's on and what the diagnoses are it's a huge burden on parents and caregivers. And she says making sure agencies, insurance companies, and hospitals have the right documents can feel like a full-time job in and of itself. And it's on top of the stress and worry about her daughter's well-being. As a parent, you will have to do paperwork as if you're going to be facing a criminal case. I swear you do. And after months of waiting and after time in the hospital, she finally got Na into a residential center a few months ago. It's in Missouri, hours away from her family and her friends. We get a 10-minute conversation at night, nightly, if I'm lucky. And it hasn't been a great experience, but it is round-the-clock support. And Cotton says they've been told Na will be home in six months, but she's not sure. And when she does get back, she knows her daughter will still need support. She's still just a teenager. And while she's grateful for the community organizations she's found during this journey, she thinks more people should know about what services are available. And Cotton says there needs to be a lot more investment in youth mental health resources for both kids and their families. Because whether that investment comes or not, the youth mental health crisis isn't ending anytime soon. All right, now it is time for our conversation with paraprofessional Dana Gilbreth. I think that paraprofessionals really are some of the more unsung heroes in education. And even though we all went to school and hope and probably had parapros in the building and folks working, people are not a hundred percent like have a good idea of what your day-to-day -day actually looks like. And I'm sure that it changes a little bit depending on the day, but can you give people like a little bit of a, a look of like what you do and kind of what that looks like on a day-to-day -day basis? 
Of course. I am currently at a middle school. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm an instructional aide, which means I am in the regular classroom. So I support students in the regular classroom, mostly students that have some type of learning disability, ADHD, those sorts of things. Um, my day-to-day changes depending on what class I'm in and even what year it is. So this year, I, pre- I predominantly support kids working with small groups, one-on-one, um, proctoring tests, um, helping with classroom behavior management, that type of thing. I was going to say, and then are you like assigned an official caseload of students? Are you covering like, specific classes? Like, how does that work? I have approximately 20 to 25 <laughs> students on my caseload. Uh-huh. I, I change classes just like the students do. Right. So I, I don't support just one grade. I start my morning off in an ELA class, the first two periods. And then I move with seventh grade students. Then I move on to sixth grade where I support students with applied tech. And then I end my day with eighth graders in physical education. What do you get to do in the PE class? I get to get my workout in. During I was going to say, do you get to get <laughs> yes. you know put on the shorts and, and, and do all the activities? Yes, I do get to participate. I I am right now we're working in the um, fitness room so I can use the cardio machines right along with the students. Wow. And so it's it's so interesting to me though cuz like you like just through that day and like you mentioned like depending I, I'm sure that this changes throughout the school year and then on like a year to year basis things probably change a good deal too but there's so many hats that you have to wear throughout the course of the day, maneuvering through different grade levels, different environments. I I don't think, you've been doing this for 16 years now, at least at at this district? Yes, I've been in this district. I think this is my 17th year. I have been working with, in the field of education for over 30 years. Oh, wow. But like 16 years, and how, how many of those 30 plus years have you been in like a paraprofessional support role? Uh, at least 20 of them. Right. So like th- that 20 plus years of experience you have, I assume has to be really invaluable because of all of the different hats that you have to wear. Like you have to be so flexible in your job, depending on the day and depending on the year. Yes. I, my job, I've probably had 10 different variations of my job in the last 10 years. I've been one-on-one. I've been a, um, I've been in self-contained classrooms. As special education has evolved, so has the role of the parapro. Really, how has that evolved the most? Do you think over the course of your career? The when I started, uh, it was more of a self-contained classroom where the students were pulled out maybe to go to PE with their regular class. Yeah. And now it's almost 100%. They're in the regular classroom doing what the other students do. And my role has just kind of evolved with those changes 
in our district, we have what is called a co-taught model so that our classrooms are, have a support, a special ed teacher and a regular ed teacher in each uh, classroom. Okay. Would you say a good deal of your work is like in small groups or one-to-one? Yes, a good deal of it is small groups, one-to-one. Um, a lot of my job is building relationships and making connections with students, which helps with managing behaviors in the classroom. Whenever I interview teachers, a lot of times teachers are administrators, and I ask them the thing that they either miss or the thing that they wish that they had more time for. And usually one of the answers I get the most frequently is, I wish I had more time for one-on-one and small groups. Yes, I can I can believe that. And that's predominantly one of the reasons I enjoy being a parapro yeah. is that I get to make those connections with the student one-on-one and I got I get to learn their stories and connect with them. And they get to open up because this middle school is a different beast than any of the other grade levels. How long have you been at the middle school level then? This is my fifth year at middle school, but I have done everything from element preschool all the way to high school. Do you feel like you are 100% comfortable in the middle school environment at this point? At this point, yes. If you'd asked me that maybe two or three years ago, I might have had a different answer. (laughs) You know, you get the opportunity to talk to these kids, learn their story, build those relationships in small groups. I'm always interested to hear from teachers about how they go about building relationships because it's something that's so like obvious, right? That like, you know, learning can only happen if the kids trust you and can be vulnerable. But that's also something that is like hard to do and like as difficult as it is to establish that trust, you can, you know, it can get broken in a second. And I'm always interested at like, especially at the beginning of the school year, even though it's like a, you know, process every day of like how you go about trying to build those relationships with the students. I bet that's something that's evolved over the course of your career too. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, one of my uh, jobs is in the morning, I do the breakfast line where the students come through the breakfast line to get their breakfast. And as you maybe think, middle schoolers aren't all that happy people in the morning. So one thing I do is say good morning to each and every single one of them. And it has taken four years, but this year is the first year that they're actually saying good morning back to me. And just that constant, just never giving up, always having that smile for them. That's, that little thing could be the one thing that helps you build a rapport with them. For, for me, that's the one thing that helps. Just starting there, that's where I start is saying good morning. Is it something that you've always done? Yes. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you, I, I was really interested in like, again, like I don't think that a lot of people have a firm idea of what you do on a day-to-day basis and what that looks like. I was curious, like, do you feel like, are there any misconceptions that people have about what you do, whether, you know, people that are outside of education or people that you don't interact with a ton at the school? Like, do you feel like there are big misconceptions about, you know, paraprofessionals and support staff? 
Oh yeah, there's definitely misconceptions. Um, one big misconception that, that people have is maybe we were not smart enough to be teachers that what we do, what do we really do? Are we valued? Are we important part of the classroom dynamic? Do you feel that, like that's, has that like, is it starting to change? Do we, do we feel like you paraprofessionals maybe get more uh, respects or, you know, do people realize the importance of it more? I, like I would think back to when I was in school and I feel like even, even with the terminology, right? Like I feel like people refer to them as like teacher's aid, right? Which like automatically puts you at like a slightly lower step yes. than the classroom teacher. But I, I'm wondering if that's something that over the past couple of years, if people have maybe started to recognize what you do a little bit more. I, I think 85 to 90 percent of the time, people give us respect and yeah. and students give us respect. It's a little more difficult with the middle school age, but that's the age where they like to push back. And what do you what do you really do? You're not really the teacher in here, but 90% of the time we do, I do get respect from my coworkers and my peers. Good. Yeah. I was, I was actually, I was, I was thinking about it a couple weeks ago. There was a big uh, report that came out about the state of Illinois and about like, just like the teacher workforce in general, like the state of it. And I saw some data that I thought was really interesting about like the, the state of professionals in Illinois and there's this really interesting and I think this will kind of dovetail into our, our conversation that we're having about the program that you're in but there's this really interesting like um, supply and demand issue with paraprofessionals where in Illinois there has never been a greater need for support staff and for paraprofessionals but the supply is not there like if you, you can go online and you can see the like unfilled paraprofessional positions online and in like six years ago in like 2017 I think that it, there was 471 unfilled paraprofessional staff positions in the state and this year it was 2,700 so we're like it's like so much more significant than it was just five years ago and I was curious for you do you see that in that like there being such a greater need for folks like you in the classroom over the past couple of years? Yeah, since the pandemic, I just the needs of the students are exponentially higher yeah. due to the loss that they've of not being in the classroom full time during those time during those years. And that the support of paraprofessionals is definitely needed more. Has that changed your job or does it just seem like there's just more need for people doing what you do? Um, I do feel like I have a lot more students on my caseload than I've had in the past. Right. There, are, there are so many more kids that need support and kids that have fallen through the cracks that we're trying to get caught up. Yeah, and I bet after like all of your experience in education, you've probably gotten pretty good at being able to identify students that might be on the verge of starting to fall through some of those cracks where you guys can identify it and try to get some extra support there. Yeah. 
definitely. Though yeah. the peer pro doesn't really have a hand in all of that, but at least bring it to the attention of the teachers. For sure. And then, like I mentioned, like how this kind of dovetails into our conversation about, you know, your involvement, your participation with the, it's the Illinois Teacher Vacancy Program, right? The, yes. the grant program. Yeah. Can you just tell me a little bit about like what that program is and like how you got involved with it, kind of what it looks like for you? There is a need for more teachers. And what our district was decided to do, they weren't finding um, applicants outside or through universities. So they um, partnered with Bloomboard and to um, help paraprofessionals become teachers. And so I already have a degree in elementary education, mm. but some of the aspects of my degree lent itself to needing um, other credentials or yes, other credentials. Thank you. Yeah, no, I got you. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it wasn't really, I wasn't able to get my license with that particular degree. So our district is allowing me to get my master's degree in uh, teaching and learning with a specialization in secondary education through through the program. Wow. So is, is it an online master's program then? Yes, it is an online master's program partnered with a university. Uh, I'm partnered with Oklahoma Christian University. Okay. And all our classes are online. I should finish within two years with my master's degree. And then I will uh, work for our, I have a three-year commitment with our district to teach. So, so have you just started the, the master's yes. program then? Yes. I just finished my first course. Oh, wow. How did you find it? How was it? It was, it was good. It was good to be learning again. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. It, it's, it, it's, a, <laughs> it's funny that, you know, it's a, uh, a, an online program and it's like, well, over the past couple of years, I'm sure you've got tons of practice on it with online learning. So, you know, that's yeah. helpful too. <laughs> yeah. I, it's been a long time since I've been the student though. Yeah. How did it feel to have the, you know, the, the tables turn on you where after 30 plus years in education, you're the one learning again? <laughs> yeah. It, that first week was difficult. Just the technology aspect of it being uh, not quite as young as I used to be. And technology was not a thing when I was going through school. So once I got the hang of how to submit my my assignments, it it was easier. Yeah, for sure. And then so like once you're done with the program, you mentioned that you're going to be at the district for, you know, at least three years. Yes. Do you have an idea of which grade level? So you said secondary that you're hoping to be at the high school level then or? Secondary would be anywhere from six to 12. Uh, I'm pretty, I hope it's not nine to 12. <laughs> you're hoping right? to stay in middle school now. I think I would love to stay in middle school. I will also be getting an endorsement in special education. Okay. So it depends on what is open at the time and where my um, school sees, my district sees the most need. Oh, okay. So you would primarily, you would be a special education teacher at you know either level then? Yes. Wow. Has this been something that you have 
been, you know, wanting to do for some time? Yeah, I've always wanted to be a teacher. That was my main goal when I got my elementary education degree, but I chose the path of raising my children beforehand. And uh, now I'm at the point where I'm ready for a new challenge, something different. So that's why I would like to do this. That That's one of the reasons why. Yeah. And I know that the, another reason that, that you mentioned or that I, that I saw of, of why you wanted to participate in the program was about, you know, the importance of representation in the classroom, too. And, you know, this is an issue that is you know, not exclusive to, to one school district or the state or even it's a, across the country where, you know, we see so often there are school districts that, you know, have, you know, I, you know even to take like your school district, for example, I think that like, you know, 47% of the, the district is Hispanic, 23% of the district's students are, are black. But then when you look at the, the numbers for, for teachers, right, like it's much, much lower than that. And that seemed like that was something that was driving you towards wanting to be a teacher and have that representation in the classroom too, right? Yes. In our district, well, in our district, it has become increasingly sort of like Yorkville. We are about, my building in particular is about 47% Hispanic also and 30% African-American. And in my building since the pandemic for the last three years, we have been talking about equity in our Mm. staff meetings, in our workshops, in our professional development. We have been working as a staff to make our environment more equitable to our learners. And as we talked and talked about it, I realized that the numbers were changing with the students as far as diversity, but they weren't changing with the staff at the same rate. Hmm. So I I thought it was time for me to step up and play a bigger part in the change for our students. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's always interesting to think of that, you know, there's so many students across the state that, you know, are students of color that go throughout their education experience, even when, you know, they're at a district that, you know, is very diverse that, you know, don't have or, or maybe have one black teacher throughout their experience or something like maybe maybe not at all. Yeah. Yeah. I had spoken. My students grew up in this district, my children, and yeah. we had talked to, I had talked to my son just last week about how many African-American teachers did you have growing up? And he could count three and two of them were PE teachers. Right. So, he just not to be able to see the faces that looked like him reflected. Okay. I had I had a situation if I could share a story with you. Please, please. With a with a student this year in my technology class, and we were uh, working on a project about their culture, their ethnic backgrounds, and they were doing a slide presentation on it, and I noticed that. Most of the students were working and they were they were busy. They had gotten started, but there was a one African-American kid and he was just sitting there. And I looked at him and then I looked around the classroom 
And I realized he was the only African-American student in the classroom. And all the other students were Latino or white. And they were all able to, you know, pull up the Mexican flag and, you know, they knew their background, but he didn't know his background. And so I went over and talked to him and gave him some ideas of, you know, I know this is a difficult because you are, our heritage is a, a mixed one and that we, we didn't come over here by choice. We came, we were brought here and just gave him some help and insights to be able to see. And that was helpful to him. And then I proceeded to go to my colleague and say that this assignment shows implicit bias. And because of the work we've been doing with our staff and in our professional develop, he was open to hearing it. And I discussed with him that I had done my DNA. So I did know my ancestry and he encouraged me to do a slide of my own racial breakdown. And so I did a slide for the class uh, reflecting all my backgrounds and was able to tie his DNA, his background, because he had said he was Irish and German. Well, I also have Irish and German in my background. And I was able to make a slide and he used it for the rest of his uh, classes and explained in detail how the African-American story can be a difficult one, shared my slide and then shared ways that could um, they could possibly do their slide, which in the other classes, I noticed once he did that, the African-American students had a connection with the project and they they were able to do the project you know it was not a struggle for them at that and it, it was because they were made to feel comfortable and acknowledged so yeah yeah and that kind of speaks to you mentioned your conversation with your son about like you know he might have you know you might have one or two or three you know, African-American teachers at your school, but sometimes they are concentrated in certain positions, right? Like in those PE positions. So, you know, having those teachers there, you know, that, that is one thing and that is good, but also like in other positions, it's, you know, it brings a completely different dynamic, right? Like having, having you there or having a, you know, special education or history to having an African-American history teacher, you know, that yeah. also is a, such a different dynamic. And, you know, you mentioned about, you know, speaking of, of your son too, you mentioned that, you know, you got your elementary education degree originally and that you chose to, you know, raise your family. And I was going to ask you about like how you got into education to begin with and kind of what your educator origin story is. I was curious, like, so we know how you went from your education degree to being a paraprofessional, but is being in education, is being a teacher, is this something that you've always wanted to do since you were a kid or was it something that came to you later? Or? I have always, for as long as I can remember, wanted to be a teacher and enjoyed working with children and other students. I had one teacher that was very 
inspirational in that decision. Mm. It was my uh, fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Stadler. I was a, I grew up as a military brat. My dad was in the Air Force. So we moved a lot. And when, by fifth grade, I'd had, fifth grade was the third school in a period of one year. So when I landed in Miss Stadler's class, I had already been to two other schools within the one year period of time. Oh my gosh. So she made me feel welcome. She made me feel comfortable in her class and she challenged me and she could see um, the need to, my, my desire to excel and how much I love school and how hard I worked in school. And uh, one thing she used to do for me is she would send me down to the first grade class to help teach the first graders to read and learn their their vocabulary words and their uh, sight words. And so she saw, she saw in me that I could be a teacher at 10 years old. Oh, maybe even before you realized that. Yeah. And she also introduced me to... Um, my African-American uh, role model hero, uh, Mary McLeod Bethune. Uh, really? Back then, Black History Month was one week. And, uh, <laughs> yes, not a month. Yes, it was a week. And she introduced me to Mary McLeod Bethune, who is a uh, great African-American educator and post-slavery, who uh, has a university in Florida, Bethune-Cookman College, named after her. And uh, she introduced me to her. Wow. And uh, do you still think about, I mean, obviously, I'm sure you still think about your teacher, but, you know, I'm, is it something you think about where, you know, you coming in there after bouncing around to three different districts within a year of, like, how she made you feel so comfortable and like supported and challenged. Is that still something you think about where you're like, how would, how would she do this? Or like, how can I use those same skills now? Oh, I'm sure she has played a part throughout my career about the importance of just uh, making students comfortable and just uh, listening to the students and also not knowing what challenges come to you from, you know, what what are the challenges that these students are struggling with outside of the classroom? Well, I don't have too many more questions for you, Dana. And again, thank you so much for, for taking the, the time out of your afternoon. I can't believe I made you miss PE class for this, but it's <laughs> a... We'll have to get your workout in somewhere else, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm going to have to take a walk tonight, I guess. Yeah, there, <laughs> but one of the last questions we always ask people on the show, and I'll frame it two different ways for you from both specifically as a paraprofessional and then more broadly just as an educator about education, is there's something about being a paraprofessional that you just wish more people knew about? Um. I'd like people to know that it is a hard job. It's not easy, but it is one of the most fulfilling jobs 
it it getting to know my students and building relationships with them is one of the hallmarks for me. Yeah. And then more broadly about education, is there something about and being in education, about education itself that you either think is maybe more important than people might realize who aren't in the classroom every day or, again, something you wish more people knew about education? Uh, I think with education, the teachers work harder than you will. The parents, people on the outside will ever realize to make your students and your, your children more successful. All right, Dana. Well, that was that was all I had for you. Again, thank you so much for taking the time out of your afternoon to do this. I feel like we're gonna have to catch up once you finish your program and once you're 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 starting as a as a full time teacher. We'll have to circle back around and see how things are going for you. All right. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to Teachers Lounge. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on the show. It's how we get all of our great guests. Send them our way to teacherslounge at niu.edu. And please continue to send your story ideas and your nominations so we can make this show the best that we can in 2024. Wherever you're hearing the podcast, please do subscribe, leave us a rating, or share it with a friend. It's the best way to get even more perspectives on the show. You can subscribe to the Teacher's Lounge newsletter if you want to keep up to date with everything we're doing with the show. You can find a link to do that on this episode's webpage over at WNIJ. Org. A big thank you to the Northern Illinois band Kind Ofs for the music you hear each and every episode of this show. I've been your host, Peter Mudlin, and we will be back with our annual Top Education Issues of the Year episode very, very soon. See ya.